0: Hey, podcast listeners, Al Martin here of Making Data Simple. First, thank you for listening. We have a lot of fun doing the podcast and and appreciate you being out there. Today I have part one with Lynn Sneed, who is the founder of Talent Evolution Systems. She's an expert in behavioral analytics. She's a consultant, a training specialist, a speaker, and maybe most importantly, a business coach. You're going to get a lot of insight, uh, hopefully, both personally and professionally from Lynn. So enjoy, and I will see you on the other side. Thanks. Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome, podcasters, to Making Data Simple. As always, we're thankful to have you here. Thank you for listening. Today, we're going to take a bit of a break from the over-tech, although we do all kinds of crazy stuff from time to time. But we're going to talk about leadership, about coaching, and being your best self, and mixing that in with data. And nobody knows that better than the guest that I have today, which is Lynn Sneed. She is the founder of Talent Evolution Systems. Uh, She is a behavioral analyst. Consultant, training specialist, speaker, a coach. She has a background in educational psychology and has specialized in organizational performance for over 20 years. The other thing about Lynn is she's one of the original Franklin Covey co-authors, has a bestseller out there. She created Franklin Covey's signature project development process and programs. She worked directly with Stephen Covey and, and went through the merger of Franklin Covey. So, Lynn, this is a special one for me. Thank you for being here. I can't tell you how much I
1: appreciate it. Oh, this is my pleasure, Al. I've been looking forward to this, and it's a treat. Thank you for the opportunity. I gave a little bit of your
0: background, but if you wouldn't mind, I always like to start with background. So could you talk to your experience, and then we'll go from there.
1: You know, a lot of times, especially when I'm doing classes uh, through all the years, I was with Franklin Covey for 20 years. And one of the things that I would talk about is the idea of what I called then the accidental project manager, uh, which I now refer to as the accidental leader. And that's the idea that, you know, we go to school, we learn something that, that we want to be an expert at for a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's data analysis, it's programming, it's engineering, it's, you know, goodness, who knows what. It's endless. And then we go to work and Our performance is recognized, and next time around, they put us in charge. And we get the promotion, and suddenly we're a leader. We weren't necessarily schooled in and prepared for the leadership part of this role. And that was very much my story. I came out of school with kind of a diverse background. I was a computer science student at the time Uh, early on of my divorce. I was a single mom of a three-year-old, and it's like, you know, you got to quit this nonsense and and find something that'll pay you some money quick and get out of here and get a job. I left school. I had enough tech background, and uh, my real interest then was educational psychology, so I had an interesting merge of sort of the people and the tech side. Um, I started with an engineering company, and Uh, was put in roles where it was recognized that I could merge the conversations between the people who really only knew the tech side and didn't want to talk to people and the people in the business, especially the salespeople, the marketing people, who wanted to talk to people but didn't understand the tech side of the business. And I sort of accidentally became this bridge between those two groups. That put me in the world of learning about project management What was then Franklin Institute was a pretty new organization in those days and I happened to be in Salt Lake City Utah which put me in the backyard and I ended up there accidentally started developing the project management training program because Franklin had this phenomenal planning tool uh, but it was missing the the next step up the project management pieces and I was able to develop that I spent 20 years sort of in this continuous improvement process and in the classroom with people who taught me what they were facing in this world of project management and i could go back to the workshop and the experts and put pieces together that would help them overcome these issues and then go back out in the classroom so i spent most of those 20 years on airplanes and in and out of corporations learning what the challenges were and learning how to help fix the challenges I refer to that as my 20-year undergraduate degree, Al. was uh, <laughs> a great place to get an education, and I did have the honor of working not only with Stephen R. Covey, Stephen Covey Sr., after the, the merge between Franklin and Covey, but my direct boss was Stephen M. R. Covey, Stephen Jr., who's the one, of course, who wrote the, the book Speed of Trust. Stephen Sr. wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is one of the world's top bestsellers. Uh, but Stephen M. R. Covey was really a mentor and a friend to me uh, who changed my life in terms of teaching me leadership and character and competence and the responsibility that you have to develop in your team members. And then I became a coach. And so that's what I've spent the next 20 years doing. And there was overlap there. I'm not that old. Uh, but that's what put me on the on the path to. I have to share what I've had this privilege of learning. What's your
0: coaching specialty? You've got a, every coach, and, and by the way, I think coaching alone just sells you short. We we'll use that term for now. What's your coaching specialty? And I, I think every coach would have a philosophy. What's your philosophy?
1: My coaching specialty started in in the very early days because of my project management background but what i found early on was concept of assessments and back in the early days you remember my uh myers-briggs there was herman brain dominance and things that they were very new then but they introduced us to concepts about learning about ourselves in a way that we were also learning about others and our differences and helping to respect our differences And I really became fascinated with the world of assessments, and I studied and researched to try and find the good ones. I did that when I went back for my graduate degree, and I have a graduate degree in corporate coaching, uh, which came after my 20 years with Franklin Covey. So assessments, to me, bring, bring data to leadership, to these skills that we didn't necessarily have when we first got our job. And the assessments allow me to coach anyone, uh, whether they're new to leadership, whether they're a C-level leader and pinpoint exactly where their strengths are. And by the way, no leader fully knows and understands their strengths uh, because they have a tendency to think, well, if I can do that, anybody can do that. And that's not the case most often. So I can help them Utilize their strengths, but also pinpoint those liabilities, those things that we all have that might be getting in the way of our career success. So yeah, coaching is, I think, a, a limited term, a misunderstood term, because there's so many different kinds of coaching out there. I'm really a more of a consultant to individuals, but a leadership. My specialty is leadership. But I also, because of my background, um, I'm coaching around project management, time management, productivity, team productivity, individual productivity. Uh, a lot of leaders don't know the difference between a process and a project. I have, I have a lot of fun with that conversation. But it's data-based. It's the ability to help someone in an area where they didn't necessarily know they needed help. The, the merge of leadership you know, I, I like to think of myself as your, your personal leadership consultant.
0: Is that like your mission statement there, or is that not your mission statement?
1: That's pretty much a long-winded version of my mission statement.
0: Very good. You know, by the way, you inspired me to create my own personal mission statement. And for anybody that's listening and haven't done that, highly, 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 highly recommend it. I still go back to that, you know, particularly when you're, you're having an off day or whatever. I I go back, hit that, and it lifts me back up quickly. And the interesting thing with that is, I tell a lot of people, hey, you know, I I mentor a lot of people. And now one of the the main things I, I ask them to do is, hey, I want you to create a personal mission statement. The first response they give me is, have you done it? I say, yes. And they say, let me see yours. And I say, no, 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 that's not how this no. is working. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you have to show me yours first, and then I'll show you mine. And I find that because I've learned that I'm not giving people have to take the time to do it uh, for me to, to share. I mean, that's the price of admission.
1: That's well put, the price of admission. I like that because you have to dig deep to do a personal mission statement. And it's, it's difficult for, for most people. And a little inspiration from examples, that, that's one thing. You can get that all over Google. But you really got to dig deep. And uh, not everybody knows yet what their mission statement is. Sometimes it presents itself later in life. And sometimes it morphs a little later in life. We don't always have the luxury of it remaining a constant. But I, I will say, as, as you just said, knowing your personal mission. Knowing your purpose, and some people call it a purpose statement. I like that. Fine. It's why we're here. Knowing what that is is so critical to us, and it does help us answer questions. It helps us make decisions. It helps us know we're on track or off track, and it helps us give meaning and value to our life, and I think that's such a critical starting point. You know, why am I here?
0: So I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question, probably, but uh, look, I find that all sports teams have coaches, and it'd be absurd to think of having a sports team without a coach. Why don't all leaders consider or have coaches?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think what you mentioned at the beginning, you we're accustomed to in team sports, if you're a part of a team and a, and a sport, you're going to have a coach. That's just a given. But coaching didn't evolve into the business and corporate world and organizational world and leadership world, really, un- until the last, you know, 20 years. And when I got my graduate degree in corporate coaching, it was hard to find a place where you could get a graduate degree in corporate coaching. Now you can find it everywhere. It's a new concept. And... Uh, there's so many different kinds, you know, there's life coaching and, you know, please don't confuse corporate coaching with life coaching, although there's certainly some overlap, but for leadership, it means you have someone who's not only been there, done that, but they also love to teach and share what they've learned and you have to share a whole lot more than you've learned. I'm a bookworm, always have been. Any issue any of my clients have, I've probably got four books I can recommend that they read that will help us weave through the issue together. So I think it's a new concept, but I I think you're right. Anybody in leadership should have a coach. The secondary part of your role, you know, what got you to the leadership position wasn't being a leader. It was some other area of expertise. And now you have to add the leadership piece to it.
0: Why do you differentiate corporate coaching from life coaching? Here's why I asked that question while you're thinking about the answer is because, by example, I used to believe in, like, uh, work-life balance. Now it's like work-life integration because it's hard to distinguish one from the other. I felt like, you know, if when I had work-life balance, I I had more work, less life in the balance. In other words, yeah. but now I integrate it, and now I just say, okay, if I need to go do this, it doesn't matter what time it is. I'm going to go do this because it's work-life integration. But do you still distinguish the corporate from the life coaching? And could you explain that?
1: Well, yeah, and I'm glad you asked that because it does, I think it requires a little explanation. You're absolutely right with what you said about the work-life integration. And when I'm coaching someone, I'm not just—I don't mean to sound like I'm just coaching on the corporate or the business side of their life. It's very much life your life is all of those things. The challenge, you know, coaching is a new industry and there are people with certifications in life coaching. They might've been through extensive training to get that certification or they might've been to a weekend workshop. And they may be excellent at the personal life part of coaching, but they probably have no corporate background and experience. So they can coach you on half of that life balance, but not the other half. Mine's just the other way around. My background is extensively in the organization and corporate life and what it means to go to work and survive the politics and and have a team that will follow you through fire, will walk on hot coals for you. And that is not something that every life coach, that's not something that most life coaches do. I cover both, but I've got the, the corporate side. What I'm trying to, to do as part of my coaching most of the time is help any individual leader, both become a better leader and be more satisfied in their position. And usually that means helping them get ready for the next level of their next desired position. Most everybody has that, you know, what, here's what I want to get to. Here's what I want next. But it's got to be balanced with the home life. There's no question about it. And I, that's a huge challenge for us these, these days. I think it always has been, it's just now more so than ever.
0: Now, does everybody really have that destination, or do some people come to you a little bit lost and oh, need help at that destination?
1: I have people who come to me feeling lost often. Um, And often it's it's their boss who recommended that they give me a call. Um, You know, one of the things that I find is that most people do have the aspiration for the next position, but that's not always a good idea. And unfortunately, we've created an environment where we feel this pressure to always be advancing. And I see people all the time who are promoted to a level of incompetence and they were happier in their previous position. If they had just been left alone, doing that individual performance piece of work, that subject matter expertise, that's what got them to work in the first place, they'd have been much mm-hmm. happier. They're not meant to be leaders. They don't really respond well to the leadership role. And you know, we see this often, we see it in project management. They take a, a, a good individual performer, promote them to the level of project manager, Well, they're not always a good project manager. We see it in sales. They take the top salesperson, promote them to a sales manager. Now they've lost their top salesperson and they don't have a good sales manager. It's a different skill set. It's all about the people. One of my favorite quotes, uh, and John Maxwell is certainly one of my favorite leadership gurus. He said, if you think you're a leader and you turn around and look behind you and there's nobody there, you're only out for a walk
0: do you believe in um the element of like natural state i mean defining what your natural state is whether you're going to be you know your last comments made me kind of think of this in terms of sometimes get people get put out of what would be quote unquote their natural state i've actually taken questionnaires or assessments on natural state and it is insightful looking at it saying you know, here's where, yeah, I'm doing well, and hey, that's my natural state. Here's where I'm struggling a little bit. Oh, it's not my natural state. I mean, do you believe in that concept, and what are your thoughts around that?
1: Well, the data that we see in the assessments, uh, and the, the term natural state isn't quite the term that we use, but when you start to study styles, both behavioral styles, motivation styles, we absolutely have a natural state, and Many times in the workplace, what we see is people who are in the wrong position. It's square peg, round hole. And I can Mm -hmm. look at their profile on paper at 50 paces and see that this is the wrong person in the wrong role. And if you just put them in their right spot, they'd be a top performer. But they can't possibly be a top performer if they're in a spot that doesn't fit their behavioral style, doesn't fit their motivation style, and doesn't fit their skill set. And the beauty of the assessments is that we see that fit. We see it when it's a good fit and we see it when it doesn't fit. And some people are flexible. Some people aren't so flexible. So some people can stretch their natural state a bit. And for others, even a slight stretch is very stressful. The data tells us that if somebody's doing a tremendous amount of stretching to make themselves fit a role There's a direct correlation between that amount of stretching and later health, uh, stress-related health disorders.
0: Two more questions. We're going to get to that data. Funny how everything surrounds data these days. But let me ask you this question. How many individuals do you think you've coached over the years?
1: If I were to add people in my classrooms, you know, in my Franklin Covey days as a a trainer, Mm -hmm. easily over 1,000 early years of coaching, I was coaching teams within organizations. The fun part of the work that I do now, because I'm, you know, as you know, sort of semi-retired. And the Mm -hmm. semi part is just that I love this stuff too much to stop doing it. (laughs) Um, But I stopped working with corporations as my clients. I work now only with individuals as my clients. And it was a superb luxury for me that came from you know, this ability to be semi-retired, because I don't want to work in an environment anymore where I can't tell somebody, you know, you do have a rotten boss. You do have to learn how to get along with this jerk. (laughs) Because if I said that when I worked for the company, I didn't get to come back. (laughs) And, And now, you know, I can say it to somebody and say, you know, let me help you get along well with this boss of yours, even though we know your boss is a jerk. Yeah. And I don't get fired for it. So, so I love that.
0: So here's my question then. After all these folks you've coached, etc., if you were to sum it up, probably not a fair question. What do you think makes, constitutes a great leader?
1: Oh, I love that question. I love that question because it goes back to the, the quote from John Maxwell that I said a little bit ago. So if you flip that around and you see a leader – who the people following, see, if you have followers, you have them for a couple of reasons. And some people follow out of fear and, and because they have to, and they're the boss. And But if, if you have followers because they choose to follow you and they are loyal and they know that you know where they're supposed to go, you know the mission, you know how they're supposed to get there and you're going to help them get there and they follow out of love and loyalty and passion for the work, that, to me, is the ideal leader. What do
0: you think are the most common mistakes you see leaders make?
1: Oh, goodness. This is going to be a long list, Al. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be a long list. Mistake number one goes to what I would say And I I tell folks that I coach, if you don't like to read, I'm not your coach because I'm going to give you reading assignments because, you know, when you think about a book – and by the way, most of what we do these days is audible. We don't have time to read books anymore, so we're reading via some form of an audible, uh, a listen-to kind of a book. But the very first one that I recommend for people is is called Leadership and Self-Deception. Mm-hmm. It's done by the Arbinger Institute. It is is my number one recommend. But the whole concept is that what happens almost the minute someone gets a promotion is a level of arrogance sets in, a level of superiority. I mean, look, think back to your your early years of education. I mean, we went to second grade and felt smarter than and better than the first graders, right? And every year, every year we got to the next level and we looked down on those we left behind from the previous years. Well, as adults, unfortunately, we didn't unlearn that rather unfortunate habit. So the first mistake that I see is leaders that get the promotion and a level of arrogance and superiority sets in. And that is fatal for a leader because nobody follows you because you think you're better than they are. Other than that, the biggest mistakes that I see are leaders who don't really lead. They don't know the mission. They don't know how to get there. They don't coach and guide and encourage and partner and collaborate with their teams. They just tell people what to do. That's not leading.
0: You know, I, uh, I, I recently read a book. This isn't a book report, but it was it was by Clayton Christensen. It's how will you measure your life, mm-hmm. and I just I recently read it. Now Clayton Christensen wrote Innovators Dilemma, and so he when also I saw. Wrote,
1: I believe the Power of Purpose. He's a, a writer about mission statements and purpose. So well, yeah, very good, excellent author.
0: Well, the interesting thing is, you know, when I think of him, I'm thinking about you know his Harvard days and Innovators Dilemma. That's kind of where my head's at. So I saw this book and I went in and read it. And I'm probably going to butcher this a little bit. But the interesting thing to me, he said, uh, I graduated with a lot of smart people. And he goes, the first uh, reunion was like 10 years. Everybody comes back. Everybody's, you know, on the cusp of greatness, high-fiving. We're having a good time. So then 20-year rolls around and like less people started coming back. And he went downhill from there. And he said, you know, some of the people of his class, by example, were those that were involved in the Enron scandal, etc. Oh. And he said, and like, I don't know if he said it exactly this way, but the way I interpret it, he goes, these were good people. I went to school with them. Those weren't the people that I saw. I don't know what happened here. So that, it's why I think he did it in his prologue or something. And he started talking about, that's why he wanted to, to, to write this, how will you measure your life? Uh, because he'd seen so many people go sideways are you have you experienced that? Any comments that you would make? I mean, are these there's the people you've coached that have reached out to you that are are in it for the wrong reasons, and you've had to steer them back into uh, into place or get them on the right train?
1: Well, you know, that too is a, is a tough. One. You're speaking to a child of the '70s here, and and if you you know, I'm fond of saying the '60s didn't end until 1972 anyway. And, you know, all of my hippie friends that were, um, you know, so involved in, uh, you know, the the flower child peace movement. And, yeah, now they're heading up, you know, their Department of Defense contractors. (laughs) And, you know, somewhere in there, there was a major tilt. (laughs) So, So the first part of your question, yeah, I see that kind of change in life uh often too often do i end up coaching and trying to get those folks back on track no i don't because by that time in their life there isn't anything anybody else is going to do to get them back on track the people that i coach Alan, and i'm fortunate in this respect they they come to me they're referred to me because some things are working well for them some things aren't sometimes they're top performers But maybe they're stressed, they're tired at the end of the day, and they want to do this with less stress. Many times they have the potential to be top performers, but something is getting in their way. But there are people who have this desire and this uh, voice in the back of their head that says, I can do this better. I can get better at this. If I had somebody to help me, uh, maybe I could get there. You know, so... The, those are the folks that I coach. They want some help and they want to accomplish more with more personal satisfaction. And I'm really big on that personal satisfaction part.
0: Yeah, me, me too. <laughs> it's called serenity for me. I need some of yeah, that. I need
1: it is serenity. And, <laughs> and work is stressful. Many times, it's it's more stressful than it needs to be.
0: All right. Thank you. And for you guys thank listening. You, Thank you for you guys listening. Uh, I always appreciate it. Reach out to us as almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Tell us what you'd like to hear about. And, uh, I'll I'll see you on the podcast. See you all. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple Podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out.